Well, hey, I am pumped up to be here with you today. I'm glad you're here. If it's your first time or maybe first time back in a long time, we are thrilled that you've taken some time out of your weekend to be with us. Now, as Dave mentioned a minute ago, this entire uh, month, we, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary as a church over five decades. Okay, our Crossroads has been around in the Evansville community, and, and this is just a benchmark that we want to highlight and celebrate uh, because over 50 years ago, some men and women, some families got together. They were part of this church in downtown town Evansville, and they, they decided to, to move and, and to go and to, to take a risk of planning and starting a church on the east side of Evansville because they had this desire for more and more people to know God, to make the name of Jesus famous because they realized that Jesus can show us a better way to live. And so that's what the foundation of this church has been about since day one, and, and even to this day, we see that story continuing out uh, as, as we hear and learn about lives that are being transformed, and, and it is just cool to be a part of this place. Uh, what an exciting chapter in the life of our church. I don't know if you feel like that uh, or not, but I certainly do. It is such a privilege to be a part uh, of Crossroads. Now, the reason why we're calling this series The Story Continues is, is because there was a specific time when God told his people, the Jews, the Israelites, the Jewish people, all the same group of people, okay? There was a specific time when he told them to set aside the 50th year to celebrate something really special. Now, that was a year when the Jewish people were to, you know, pause on their normal activities, their normal day-to-day routine, and, and they were to look back and reflect upon how bad their story was and yet how good God was because he stepped in and delivered them and intervened in a time of their life that was really dark. They were in slavery. And so the writers of Scripture called the 50th year the year of Jubilee. And you see, for the Jewish people, the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, it was all about knowing God more and being known by him. And so that's what this series is about. And each week we're, we're looking at what it looks like for us to take intentional steps to know God more and to be known by him. Now, with each step that we take to know God more, we're going to realize that each step requires that we surrender even more and more and more. That, that's just a prerequisite to knowing, to knowing God, to knowing Jesus. Now, the thing is, you, you can choose surrender or you can choose comfort, but you can't have both. All right, and that's what we're going to look at today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right in. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Luke, all right? Luke is towards the back of your Bibles, and this is a biography on the life of Jesus. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black one in the seat right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on one of those tables as you walked in a minute ago. If you're worshiping with us online, Facebook Live, welcome. Words will be up here on the screen. We want you to follow along. Okay, we're going to be in chapter seven, and we're going to look at a story uh, involving Jesus here. Now, again, if you're a guest with us today and you've been staring at the ceiling the entire time, just surprised it hasn't caved in yet. All right, we're glad you're here. Okay, now the thing is, you probably don't. We probably have different beliefs somewhere along the way, and I just want you to know, you don't have to believe like us in order to be welcome here. Okay. The thing is, we all have needs, we all have issues in life, whether we believe that this Jesus guy really was God or not. We all have similar issues and problems in life, regardless of how religious or or spiritual we may claim to be. And so our intention is that you'll be able to walk away today understanding a little bit more about who who this Jesus guy is that, that we worship. All right, now, the book of Luke was written by a doctor by the name of... Luke, all right, we're smart. 
Very good. You're paying attention. All right, 2,000 years ago during the first century, Luke was a, a physician. He was a doctor. And, and what he did when writing this book was he interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses uh, to the life of, of Christ, people who actually knew and interacted with Jesus. And, and he interviewed them in a very thorough way. And, and this guy, Luke, became so convinced that Jesus really was God that what he ended up doing was he sold his medical practice and began starting churches all across the Roman world because he knew that other people had to know about this Jesus guy. One of the themes throughout this book that we're going to see is that that Jesus had this unique ability to engage those who are overlooked and marginalized in life, and and that's the story that we see playing out. If you're following along, pick up with me in chapter 7, verse 36. Luke sets up the scene by saying this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and, and reclined at the table. Jesus was just chilling out here, all right? Now, Jesus was invited to the home of, of a guy by the name of Simon. He was the Pharisee that, uh, whose home Jesus was in. And, and these guys, Pharisees, religious leaders, they, they were kind of like pastors during their day, only they probably had a better reputation in their communities. And so they were esteemed that they were, uh, people looked up to these guys. Now, one of the reasons why you might throw an open dinner, which is what we see happening here, is so that your neighbors, those in your community, would be impressed by who you were eating dinner with, who was welcomed into your home. And so it's kind of like a, a way to flaunt your status and a way to earn more respect in your neighborhood. You see, Jesus was a celebrity at this point in his life, which guaranteed Simon more status, more prestige, because people would see, oh my goodness, he... Simon's identifying with Jesus. He's one with him. And so the party was kind of going as expected. And then things take a pretty awkward turn when this woman comes walking through the front door. Check out what happens next. A woman in that town who lived a very sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with, his, with her tears. She, she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. What in the world is happening here? This is weird. Now, this woman who approached Jesus out of nowhere was a prostitute. That's what Luke means when he says that she was a, a woman who lived a sinful life, okay? People in her town knew her because of her sin. They knew her based upon the mistakes that she had made in her past, You see, she was defined by and imprisoned by her past. You know what that's like? Doesn't that describe some of our stories in here? You see, this woman lived a very broken life. Understand that she didn't have dreams as a young child of growing up to be a prostitute, okay? When her kindergarten teacher pulled her aside and said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? She didn't say, hey, I'd love to be a stripper. All right, that's not the case. But what ended up happening is she made some bad decisions along the way, and she never intended to be there. She never intended to to, to be in this situation in life, and yet one day she woke up beside these men that she didn't know their names, she didn't know who they were, and and she found herself doing things that she promised herself she would never do. It it was just one bad decision after another led her to this very broken place, And, and so she enters into this life of prostitution simply to provide for her family because some respected guys in her community, all right, promised that they would pay top dollar if she could fulfill their fantasies. 
Then one day, this Jesus guy walks into town and he starts talking about this God who can provide forgiveness, can show a better way to live. He can provide freedom no matter what your past looks like. And and when she first heard that, it seemed a little bit too good to be true. I mean, there's no way that God can forgive me. There's no way that that he can undo my shame, my guilt, everything that that I've done. I mean, that's just too good to be true. Because, you see, the God that she learned about growing up, he was all about rules, He was all about what you do or or what you don't do. I mean, the God that she learned to follow growing up would have never had anything to do with her. She had run too far. Her life was too messy, too broken. So this Jesus guy talking about a God who could forgive her? Yeah, right. A couple months later, Jesus comes to town. She hears about it, and she, she learns where Jesus is eating dinner, and so she says, this is my opportunity to, to see if a second chance is really possible for somebody like me, and, and so she begins crafting this speech in her mind, Jesus, I, I never meant to end up in this place, and, and she's rehearsing it over and over again, and so she begins walking towards the house where Jesus is, her heart's beating a little bit quicker, she approaches Simon's house, her, her knees are shaking, she's really nervous, she doesn't know how she's going to be received, she knows that she's probably going to bump into some clients, and that's going to be really awkward, right, and and so she, she just doesn't know what's going to happen. She walks through the front door of Simon's house. She's directed towards the room where Jesus is reclining at the table where he's eating dinner. And in a moment, she forgets all the words to her speech. It's like she's speechless standing there in the presence of Jesus. She doesn't know what to do except just fall to her feet. And she begins crying. She begins washing Jesus' feet. She she can tell that they're really dirty, that that hadn't taken place a few minutes before like Simon should have. And and so then she takes her alabaster jar of perfume. Now understand that this was a very expensive commodity, okay? Women during the first century wore these little jars around their necks. It was very pricey. It it usually cost about an entire year's worth of of wages. And so this was more than just a commodity. It was more than just a, a thing that she bought at Macy's that was really expensive, okay? No, this thing represented her her future. It was her retirement. It was her security and and comfort. And yet she poured it on the feet of Jesus? Really? As she did that, everyone who's watching this take place, their criticism and concern of her decision-making abilities were only validated because you didn't do this. I mean, you'd be insane to just pour out $50,000 worth of income right there on the feet of somebody. And take a look at what we see happening next. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet talking about Jesus, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. But she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Listen up, bro. (laughs) Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, it's interesting that Luke specifically mentions that Jesus heard his thoughts, okay? He, he knew what Simon was thinking in that moment, and, and so he decides to address it by telling a story. And, and so Jesus says, hey, look, I, I want to tell you something, Simon. And when Jesus says that, right when he responds by saying, well, well tell me, teacher, we know that, that Simon anticipated for Jesus to honor him, to praise him, to, to give him words of affirmation, to bless him. It's like he's like, all right, come on, Jesus, bring it to me. Yeah, tell me how good I am. And yet, the story that Jesus is about to tell is going to catch him totally off guard. What's that story all about? Check out, check out what he says next. 
In verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. That, that was too big. I can't, I can't pay back what, what I owe. I mean, I, I've made too big of a, a withdrawal. They didn't have money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them, Jesus says, will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You're right. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And so by telling Simon this story, Jesus came to the prostitute's defense. He literally put himself between Simon the Pharisee, the one who was judging her, and the prostitute. He knew that she was motivated by love and gratitude. She, she was broken, all right? But when Jesus told this story, he surprised Simon by turning it around on him. <laughs> Look at verse 44. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. I'm not holding her past against, against her. She's not getting punishment. She's not getting what she deserves. As great as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Isn't that just true? Whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Jesus made it perfectly clear that, that Simon felt like he was doing Jesus a favor by having him in his home and, and sharing a meal with him. That's why he failed to meet the cultural standards of, of hospitality here. Now, it's not that Jesus was offended by the fact that Simon didn't wash his feet because they were really dirty at the end of the day. Je Jesus really could have cared less about his physical needs being met. He wasn't upset about that. But you see, everything that Simon failed to do in this moment, it revealed and showed the condition of his heart. It, it revealed what he really cared about most in life. And although Simon looked committed, he looked religious, he looked obedient, he looked spiritual on the outside, he looked passionate about God, it was just a facade. It was just an act. It was just an appearance thing. You see, he knew so much about God that he confused knowledge for a relationship. And we looked at that last week. And so Jesus' point right here is that the religious leaders and the prostitute are both equally are both equal in their sin. Both are sinners. But Jesus makes the point to say that the prostitute was actually in a better condition than the Pharisees. Why is that? That sounds crazy. Because at least she was aware of her brokenness. At least she was aware of her sin. She hadn't been inoculated by her obedience, good works, and, and her religiosity in life. About a year ago, uh, our oldest son, John Ryman, uh, reacted really, really bad towards uh, allergies. And uh, he, he's always kind of uh, had real bad allergies, and, and so I decided to, to take him one day to see my dad over in Louisville, who's an allergist, and my dad did some allergy, allergy testing on him, where he, he poked him with different things on his back to see what he reacted to, and, and after doing that for a little while, my dad said, well, JR is going to need to be put on some allergy shots. I said, that's great. What, what all is involved with that? He said, well, the things that he reacted to, the things that he's allergic to, we're actually going to inject him with that very same serum about once a week because even though he may react in the moment, over the course of time, his body is going to build up this defense against the thing that, that he's allergic to. And so over the course of time, your body becomes immune to the thing that, that you react to simply because you have so much of it, little by little, injected into your body. And so for here, with Simon, 
It's like he had been injected with memorizing scripture. He had been injected with serving and doing what was right and looking obedient and, 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 you know, not doing this, not going there, not interacting with that person, doing this when that individual was looking. And and you see, over the course of time, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, Simon, you've immunized yourself, you've immunized your soul because you've just been inoculated by all these good works that you've done. You've had just enough of it in your life to really keep you from the real thing. Simon, you've confused knowledge and obedience for intimacy in a relationship. And that's a scary thing. And so here's one takeaway that we can identify from the story. It goes like this. All right, why you serve is determined by who you think you are. Why you serve is determined by who you think you are. You know, the biggest difference between Simon and the prostitute in this story was how they saw themselves. The prostitute knew that she was a sinner with no other hope than what Christ could offer her. Therefore, she sacrificed her reputation, her her image, her financial security, and, and time out of love and gratitude for what Jesus could offer her. This is about swallowing your pride and seeing yourself for who you really are. Rick Kyle, our teaching pastor, has been uh, transitioning from California to here. He's closed on his house. And, and this past week, he, he went uh, to get his driver's license. Now, before he left for the BMV, he said to me, hey, I'm going to go get my driver's license. I said, well, buddy, did, did you study? He said, I don't need to study. I've been driving for 39 years, bro. I'm like, all right. <laughs> An hour later, he called me from the BMV. Can you come pick me up? He failed his driver's test, all right? True story. Make fun of him after service when you see him. Who fails their driver's test? Driving 39 years, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Now, you see, when you have an inflated view of yourself, <laughs> like Rick, uh, your behavior begins to, to shape around that. And so some things that you shouldn't do or should do and you maybe don't do, it, it's really not a behavior issue. It's an identity issue. And Jesus is saying here, hey, look, this isn't a behavior thing for Simon. It's an identity thing. You see, you are free to give yourself to others when you know who you are and you remember what God has done for you in spite of you. Let me say that again. You're free to give yourself to others when you know who you are and you remember what God has done for you in spite of you. You see, loving and serving the people around us is the way that we live out the central message of our faith. What do I mean by that? Well, if Jesus didn't surrender his rights and he didn't allow himself to be sacrificed on the cross, then we have no hope. Here at Crossroads, we love to say it like this, that when we begin a relationship with Jesus, we're not only saved from something, we're not only freed from punishment, but we're actually saved for something. We're given a purpose, we're given a mission, right? And so we're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. And when we look at what our mission really is in life, that's to connect everybody to Jesus. And Jesus said the best way for this to happen is just to love people, to meet them where they're at, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way Jesus said it. And so as a staff, we've been trying to uh, really live this out in a more practical way. The question is, well, who's my neighbor? Who's the neighbor in my life? Well, a good definition is, well, anybody who needs you, anybody that you're connected with who has needs or wants that you can meet. But what if, what if we just started, uh, what if we began just loving our literal neighbors, the people who lived around us? And so that's what we've been trying to intentionally live out. Uh, I want to share with you a story about how uh, one of our staff members, Adrian Gregorich, uh, has been living this out. She emailed me this this past week. She said, you know, when we moved into our new house over a year ago, my neighbors and I exchanged names and we never talked again. 
My dog was actually the one to make the first move, running over to my neighbor when we were walking to our cars at the same time. I simply asked how she was. It was a little bit of an awkward encounter, and and she told me in that moment that, that she was on her way to her brother's funeral. She had to go, but I said I was sorry, and I'd be praying for her and her family. A few days later, I saw a simple bouquet of white flowers and bought them for my neighbor. The next day, I I got home late, but there her and her partner were sitting on their front porch, and they were shocked that that I brought them flowers. What what an act of generosity caught them by surprise. So they invited me to sit down with them, and instead of my usual excuse of needing to get back to something in, in the house, I followed what I had been learning, and that is to love and serve my neighbors the way that Jesus would, making time for them. Adrian said, we we talked for about an hour, and I learned a lot about them, and in turn, they learned a lot about me. We had a lot more in common than I ever imagined was possible. I thought I didn't have time to to talk with my neighbors, Adrian says, but I do. I thought I didn't have a reason to invest in them, but I have the greatest reason in, in the entire world. She said, it's amazing. It's amazing what God can do with a dog and a bouquet of flowers. What I love about this story is the more steps Adrian has taken to serve people the way that Jesus has, the more she's realized who she is and what God has done for her. And she's free to give herself to others like that. Here's the second thing I want us to see from this story. How much you serve is determined by what you're willing to surrender. How much you serve is determined by what you're willing to surrender. You see, love really isn't love unless it costs us something. It's a decision to inconvenience yourself so that someone else may benefit from it. Alcoholics Anonymous have really discovered the secret behind this. Uh, They're famous for the 12-step program uh, in helping people obtain sobriety in their life. Now, of all the 12-step programs, which they've had a lot of success with, do you know the one thing that you will not find at the core of their teaching Never once at an AA meeting will you hear, well, you know what, just, just try harder. Determine a little bit more stronger to, to not drink, to, to not give in. Why? Well, because your will can only go so far. And so rather than determining even more or even stronger to, to not do something or to do something, your will can only go so far. At the core of AA is, the, is this idea that, that it's really about surrendering your will. Now, when we hear surrender, we think defeat. We think, well, surrender is the equivalent of of losing, isn't it? Not to Jesus. No, in fact, Jesus said just the opposite, that that surrender is really victory. Because surrender is that place where we learn how to live a better way. A guy by the name of of Paul, he, he at one point didn't believe that Jesus really was God. Then he became so convinced that he was that he dedicated his entire life to to starting churches all across the Roman world. And in one of those churches in Rome, he wrote this letter, which about half of his, uh, half the New Testament was made up of his letters. Here's one of them. He, he says this, hey guys, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, Paul says. Now, what is, whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it there for? I'm smart. I know. All right. I went to Bible college and seminary to learn just that. All right. So what is it there for? Well, Paul's basically saying, hey, look, because we've been rescued from the punishment of our sin, because we're broken, we don't deserve God's love, yet he's given it to us anyway, here's how we can respond in gratitude. Here's what God desires of us every day uh, moving forward, and that is to become a living sacrifice. Now, this phrase would have really caught the first century believers who were reading it for the first time uh, off guard. Here's why. Because there was no such thing as a living sacrifice. 
That word sacrifice you would equate with, with something that's dead, okay? It, it's not alive. It's something that, that, that you kill. And so Paul says basically here, hey, here's how you can please God. Become a, a living corpse? What? That's, that doesn't make sense. That's stupid. And yet this was Paul's call to, of saying, hey, give up control, give up worry, comfort, and anything else that may stand between someone knowing more about who Jesus is. Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me or over-spiritualize it or make it more complicated than it needs to be. Surrender does not mean that you must give everything away, you must sell all your cars, everything that you own, and move to some third world country and live in poverty for the rest of your life and, and claim that because you're miserable, you're more spiritual. That's not the point, okay? And that doesn't make you more spiritual. There's nothing spiritual about being miserable for the sake of, of, of the gospel necessarily. That's not the point. Sometimes surrender is as simple as being willing to be inconvenienced so that the people around you can experience the love of Jesus. Mike Berktall of our church, let me give you one example of this. He's a veteran of some of our, of our armed forces. Uh, he's a guy who has served our country really well, and, and after combat, he, he came back and, and, and had a lot of issues that he was dealing with and needed to be freed from some things that he experienced, and, and so he gave all of that to Jesus. It was a process, it was a journey, and, and he's been walking in wholeness since then, now, Mike could be doing a lot of things with his life, but do you know what he does every Monday night with men and women right in our community who have served in our armed forces who are dealing with the same issues that he has? He leads Point Man Ministries, and, and he basically comes alongside these men and women and helps them experience freedom. You see, Mike used to be somebody who, who fought for our country's freedom. Now, he's fighting for men and women who fought for freedom to experience an even greater, better freedom because of what Jesus has done for him. He could be doing a lot of other things, but because of his experiences in life, because of what he's been through, and because of the healing that Jesus has given him, he's saying, hey, how, how, can, I help, how can I help you? How can I serve? How can I be a living sacrifice? I'm so proud of some ladies in our church who are a part of an organization called the Hadassah Group. Now, these ladies go into local strip clubs, and they basically love the women that are working there. Now, these women, they, they live very messy lives. And this requires that the women in our church who are going into the strip clubs, that they surrender what's comfortable for them, that they surrender some of their conviction. I mean, they, they know they shouldn't be living that way, but you know what, you know what Jesus never said? Jesus never said, hey, you, you gotta agree with everything that someone believes and every choice that they've made and every circumstance they're walking in, and then you can love them. He didn't say that. Well, these are women who are meeting these really broken women where, where they're at, and they're getting an opportunity to point them to the love of Jesus. L let me give you one more specific example of this. They, they threw a spa party for some of the strippers, and this was a team effort from this church uh, of coming together. Sherry Thompson spent the whole day praying while this party was going on. Amy Lloyd, who's a Mary Kay consultant, did makeup for the women. Kelsey Slade, who's very creative, she decorated the office where the party was. She put her gifts to use there. Lisa Corbett organized some gifts for the women that several small groups, several of you uh, provided so that these women could be loved. I'm so, I'm so proud of you all. The only agenda with this spa day party was that these women coming in from the adult industry would walk away feeling a little bit more loved. And you know what? It's not a stretch of the imagination to say that, that that moment was probably the first time in their entire life that they actually saw and experienced what true love is. I mean, chances are many of them didn't even know how to react to such selfless love. 
because they're so used to a bait and switch. They're so used to, well, what strings are attached? What, what, what do you want from me? What, what do you need from me? Let me get more practical with you. Let me just put this challenge before you. We're five weeks away from launching Crossroads West, all right? We're excited about this. And the reason why we are becoming one church in multiple locations across the tri-state region is because we learned a long time ago that someone's relationship with Jesus, their proximity to Jesus is determined by their proximity to a church. And so if someone lives beyond a 15-minute radius of this campus, their chances of being introduced to Jesus is a lot less likely. And so rather than people coming to us and being inconvenienced by a commute or whatever barriers they may have, we said, rather than you coming to us, we're, we're going to go to you. And so we're starting campuses all across the tri-state region. Now, this is not about Crossroads becoming famous. This is not about, you know, making our name better and increasing our reputation. No, don't misunderstand me. Don't mistake what we're about. This is about making Jesus known. This is about connecting more and more people to Jesus because it's a lost and broken world out there, and we all need hope. We all need to be taught that there is a better way to live, and some of the choices that we've made in our past, it doesn't have to continue to define us. Now, a lot of us, we know that, but you know who doesn't? People out there, some of us in here right now, some of us listening on Facebook Live. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. Even if you live beyond a 12 or 15 minute radius of Crossroads West, which is located on the west side on Bismarck Avenue, I want you to consider being a part of our launch team, okay? This simply means that, that you're going to commit to attending that campus for at least six months, maybe longer but you're gonna serve, you're gonna be a part of what we're doing there. That may mean that you become a greeter, you join our hospitality team, you help park cars, you rock babies, you get involved with the nursery, you get involved with the media team. Well, I, I don't know what this looks like for you, but, but you've got some gifts that we could use on that campus. Look, we're all about connecting more people to Jesus, but we need your help. We need you a part of this journey. We, we need you to be on board with this. And so if you're interested in being a part of our launch team, I want you to pull out your phone right now or write this down so that you can log on uh, to the computer computer later, cccgo.com slash west, all right, scroll down that page, click a link, like serve with us, give us your information, let us know you're interested, we'll follow up with you and we'll make sure that you get connected, and uh, again, just about six months, and then you can come back here and do whatever you want, but at least six months is what we're asking you to do if you're going to be a part of the, of the launch team. Now, let me be really straight with you about something, I'm going to pull it back up here. Right, being fed has little to do with someone pouring into you and more to do with you pouring yourself out to someone else. And we become like Jesus whenever we take the focus off ourselves and we put it on other people. You see, the biggest threat to the church, the biggest threat to church isn't Satan, spiritual warfare, political leaders, or even some sexual sin that gets uh, involved with, with members and leaders and such. No, I'd say that the most common thing that kills churches, especially all across America, is this thing called consumerism. I mean, we naturally want to ask, well, well what's in it? What's in it for me? <laughs> How's the coffee taste? How many times did I get greeted as I walked in from the car into here? What was the sermon like? Now you need to know, let me be really clear about something, that everything that we do around here, every bit of who we are as a church is about leveraging what God has entrusted to us to connect more people to Jesus in the shortest amount of time. The last thing that we wanna do is to put up a wall for someone who barely crawls in here, having had the worst week of their life, or who's been butchered by their previous church. They crawl in here and they're just looking for hope, they're looking for assurance, that they're looking for Jesus. We wanna eliminate as many obstacles as possible. And so that's why we value things like 
excellence, creativity, authenticity, and hospitality. You see, let me be really clear about this. All right, we exist for people who are not here yet. Our focus should be on people who are not here rather than those of us who already are here. Why? Because you're saved, you're fine. Now, the reason why you're still here is to identify those who are lost who, who are not fine yet. And so everything we do around here is about that. Now, sometimes we fall short of that. I'll just be really straight with you. I did a funeral yesterday, and this mom came up to me, introduced her 12-year-old son to me, and uh, she said, hey, Billy, you know, th- this is Pastor Patrick. He's the guy that you always fall asleep to every week in church. <laughs> hey, yeah, good to meet you too, right? Thank you. <laughs> Jesus is not looking for consumers. He's looking for contributors. He's looking for those who say, it's not about me, it's about others. It's about winning more and more people to Christ. And so are you a contributor or are you a consumer? Here's the last thing I want you to identify from this story. Whom you serve is determined by where you find love. All right, whom you serve is determined by where you find love. Now let's be really honest with ourselves here for just a minute. We've all got people in our life that are just really difficult to love, hard to love, right? EGRs, extra grace required. You avoid them, you don't like them, they frustrate you, they anger you. You think about how are you gonna retaliate, how are you gonna get back? Raise your hand if you have people in your life that are just hard to love. Come on, let's be honest. If you're not holding your hand up, you're lying. Can't lie in church, all right? Keep your hand up if that person who's hard to love is with you right now, sitting beside you. It's going to be a long car ride home, all right? (laughs) We've all got people like that. But what's interesting, whenever we look in the biographies on the life of Jesus, never once did he avoid people who were hard to love. He never prayed that God would remove difficult people from his life. No, he, he did just the opposite. He ran towards people like that. Now, difficult people have a way of revealing the condition of our hearts, it's not like Jesus didn't know that his reputation would decrease the moment that he accepted this prostitute's worship towards him. He knew that by allowing it, people were going to spread rumors about him, were going to murmur about him, and it just wasn't going to end well for him, but he didn't care. <laughs> in his book, Jesus Is, author Judas Smith, it says that we all go through about four layers of, of, of how we view people in regards to the love that we've experienced with Jesus. The first layer, which is the most shallow layer, goes like this. I am a good person, and I am justified in criticizing bad people. We go a little bit deeper with it. Layer two is I'm a good person, but I should show compassion to bad people, right? I mean, I know that's part of it. Layer three, I am a sinner who needs just as much help as the next guy. So you're getting more and more to an awareness of your condition. And then number four is I am loved by Jesus, just as I am, and so is everyone else. I want you to close your eyes for just a second. I want you to imagine in your mind someone in your life that is really difficult for you to love right now. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, step-parent, step-child, co-worker, boss, former friend. Who's that person for you? With your eyes closed, here's the next thing I want you to do. How have you made that person aware that you don't like him or her? (laughs) Something you did, something you said, an email you wrote to them, a note that you left on their desk. What what did you say behind their back? How have you made it known you, you don't like this person? Now open your eyes. Now you're not going to like what what I'm about to say. Now this is my opinion, but I'm right. (laughs) I am. It goes like this. When you get down to it, failing to love difficult people reveals that you have failed to really understand Jesus' love for you. We're selfish with our love, aren't we? 
I mean, it's a really good thing that, that Jesus is better at this whole loving thing than, than we are. Because my story goes like this. I don't know if you can identify with this. Even when Jesus had every right to reject me, he had every right to overlook me, forget me. He had every right to give up on me. He had every right to be disappointed and frustrated by, by me. He had every right to not like me, let alone love me. In that moment, instead, Jesus' response to my sin, my brokenness went like this. Hey, Patrick, I got you. I know you're a mess. But I've chosen you, I love you, and I'm gonna take care of you. You see, I think we're a lot harder on ourselves than, than Jesus is with us. And so would you see Jesus any differently if you realize that he doesn't just put up with you like a child in diapers, okay? He, he doesn't just occasionally like you. No, he, he not only loves you, but he takes delight in you as well. He's not in love with a better version of you, a more improved version of who you are today. No, he loves and likes you just the way you are right now in life. In just a minute, Chris is gonna come out here and, and gonna sing a song called Simple Gospel. Now that word gospel, it's kind of churchy. Let me just define it for you real quick. The gospel, according to Jesus, means this. It's the good news that Jesus came to rescue us in spite of us. You see, the gospel is all about that moment when Jesus surrendered himself so that we could be loved. The gospel is not about what we do. It's not about what we don't do. It has nothing to do with us checking off some list of do's and don'ts. No, the gospel is all about what Jesus has done in spite of us. But I think one of the quickest ways that we begin experiencing the gospel and it becomes real to us is when we force ourselves to love people who don't deserve it. Why is that? Because we are that difficult person. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are that difficult person who's hard to love. We don't deserve it. But instead of getting even with us, Jesus did just the opposite. He sacrificed himself for us in our place. And so here's the takeaway today. What's one thing, one thing you can do this week to show that person that's hard to love for you, that person that came to mind, or maybe that group of people that came to mind in a minute ago, what's one thing you can do this week to show that individual who they really are in God's eyes? I'm not saying love that person the way that you feel like it. This isn't a call to emotions. I'm not asking you to run a marathon. I'm not asking you to do a long list of things. What's one thing, one thing you can do this week? Put aside your preferences, put aside your justified judgment. She did this, he did that. What's one thing you can do this week? to help that person see who they really are in God's eyes. Maybe it's a note, maybe it's a text, maybe it's an email, maybe it's giving them something that you know that they will love. What, what is that one thing? And so as we listen to the song, I really want you to internalize some of these lyrics. I want you to think about them. And, and some of us, it's hard for us to love others because we really haven't, we haven't really loved ourselves. We just don't get it that, that in spite of what we've been through, Jesus accepts us. About two weeks ago, on a Friday morning, I was making coffee and uh, put the pot of water on the stove and it was boiling and uh, when it started whistling, the kettle started whistling, my five-year-old son, John Ryman, went over and pulled it off the stove. Well, he proceeded to carry it across the kitchen to where I was on the other side and as he was making his way to the stove to where I was, he dropped the kettle of boiling water right on his right foot and he started just screaming uncontrollably. It was the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. And so I immediately picked him up and, and I peeled off the sock that, that he was wearing. And, and as I took his sock off, that first layer of skin came off with it. He was, just ha he, was, he was just in agony. I immediately threw him in the car, took him to urgent care center. And come to find out, he had a second degree burn. Now, he knew he shouldn't have done that. He's not allowed to touch things on the stove. Uh, really, it was... 
his fault. But let me ask you something. Would I be a good dad if while he's screaming, while he's howling, while he's in agony, if I said to him, you know what, JR, you, you shouldn't have done that. It's your fault, your mistake. You broke the rules. No, no good, no good dad would do that. Instead, I held him tight and I kept saying, hey, buddy, if I, could, if I could take this pain from you, I would. I wish, I wish I could take it from you. I wish I could take it. Daddy's here for you. I love you. I, it's going to be okay. This may be hard for you to imagine because you've been through a lot of stuff. You, you've encountered a lot of hurt in your life. But what if in spite of the wounds that define your past, some of the scars from the things that you've been through, what if instead of pointing a finger at you, God looks down and, and says, I love you so much that, that I willingly, I actually absorbed those wounds for you. I took the pain for you so, so you wouldn't have to. See, that's how much God loves you. Let's pray. God, I gotta be honest. Sometimes I just really stink at this whole loving people thing. Sometimes I'm just a, a, a bad Christian and I'm so thankful that the gospel, that your grace, your goodness, it's not just something that we need one time, but it's something we need every moment of the day. And, and so God, would you continue to teach us and allow us to experience and fathom on a deeper level what it really means to be loved by you? Because God, we, we can't give what we don't have. And, and so it begins by first realizing who we are, maybe who we're not, and what you're all about, who you are, God, and the love that you've shown to us on the cross. Thank you for being our good Father who absorbed all the consequences of our sin when you hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.